Welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path, and I'm your host, Mike Allen. Just want to take a minute to remark on the fact that this is the 50th episode of Amazing Tales since I started doing it in September of 2021 last year, and to also say that I'm going to do it for about another year or so if I continue to do it on a weekly basis. I figure I have enough material to keep me going until then. And I also want to say thank you to people who have contacted me about the program to pass along their compliments and their thanks. It uh, is something I very much appreciate. So on today's edition, we're going to talk about a fact that every Connecticut resident knows quite well, and that is simply that Connecticut's most abundant natural resource is rocks. They are everywhere. Certainly every time you dig, you find plenty of them. When Mother Nature's geologic forces created this state, her calling card rocks were left behind in ample supply. But before you go on cursing all these stones, a couple things to remember. First of all, they were liquid about 500 to 600 million years ago. And also, they have minerals inside them, many of which are rare, valuable, and now named after some of our own towns. And that's what we're going to focus on today, the unheralded contributions made by Connecticut rock deposits and the incredible stories behind them. I have five guests for today's program. Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored Magazine. Brent Colley, the Reading native and historian who's currently the first selectman of Sharon. Bridget Gurton, executive director of the Danbury Museum and Historical Society. John Dwyer, town historian of Southbury. And Bob Brown, the chairman of the board of the Brookfield Museum and Historical Society. And now, Connecticut added elegance to the Statue of Liberty. Rocks. In many cases, they're a nuisance, like when planting a garden or digging a well or installing a below-ground swimming pool. But they can be extremely helpful. Think back on the thousands of stone walls that were built in the colonial period, which continue to dot the woodlands around our state. Now, with rare exceptions, like the fertile river valleys along several Connecticut rivers, rocks are a primary component of our landscape. But rocks do contain minerals, and some of them are highly valuable, and believe it or not, some are even gemstones in this state. Now, certain types of rock, like granite, are a mainstay in the construction industry, and from its earliest days, Connecticut has mined granite, and it's benefited from other rocks and minerals. A lot of that activity occurred in the 1700s and 1800s, when mining was actually a substantial business here. Now, unfortunately, there's not enough time in this podcast to deeply delve into all the different rocks that have helped the state and tell all the different stories. So instead, I'm going to touch on a few topics and selectively drill down on a few others. Well, a couple of fun facts. First of all, the first time that gold was struck east of the Mississippi River was in Portland, Connecticut. And fact number two... After the United States was formed, the first state where copper, nickel, granite, and marble were mined was, yes, Connecticut. Now, I could devote an entire episode alone to the iron ore industry, which was concentrated in the beautiful northwest hills of Litchfield County. Many of the cannonballs for the Revolutionary and Civil Wars were mined and smelted in places like Roxbury, Sharon, and other locations. 
Even Brookfield has its ironworks section of town, where Brookfield Museum and Historical Society Board Chairman Bob Brown says an iron ore smelter was located near the Still River. They smelted iron there, melted it down from iron ore that was taken from the surface of the earth. There were miners, but they weren't digging mines. People would contract to bring iron ore to that location, and they would boil it down to make a more better, more pure iron. In fact, Bob lives in the house where 300 years ago, the man lived who ran that smelter. We could also spend a lot of time talking about the copper industry, but we won't. One of Connecticut's first large enterprises was a copper mine in East Granby, where the remnants of the Newgate prison are still located today. There's also a fascinating story behind a speculative copper mine in Woodbury, which unfortunately we don't have time for. So many rock stories, so little time. Well, in the late 1830s, Connecticut set out to learn what it had in terms of natural resources, not just rocks. And when they got to Danbury, they struck gold, so to speak. Not really gold, but rather a new gemstone. Here's Danbury Museum and Historical Society Executive Director Bridget Girton. The state of Connecticut hires this guy named Charles Shepard, who goes on to be a well-known mineralogist. He has a great career, but at this point, he is still young, and uh, the state of Connecticut hires him to go town to town to identify all of the the cool features, you know, the, the cool streams and the mountains and those things that might be economically feasible for the state to know about in every town, you know. So it was a good exploration of the state geology, geography, and possible economic exploitation down the road. So he goes town to town, and he ends up in Danbury, and he finds this outcropping of rock, which um, he knew had was found in a variety of locations but hadn't been named. And so he applies to the Gems and Mineralogical Societies of the time to name it Danburyite, which is interesting because he could have called it Shepherdite or Shepherdstone or, you know, something equally as ego-fulfilling as that. But instead, he says, oh, you know, I'm going to name it after that town. I'm going to name it after after Danbury. So he suggests the name Danburyite, and that is what that stone is referred to to this day. Well, there's a website you can access that shows the location of mines where valuable minerals have been found throughout Connecticut. It's called mindat.org, and that's M-I-N-D-A-T dot org. Now, it shows Danbury's Danburyite mine location right on Main Street near the intersection with White Street where the Still River is. Bridget says there's a history behind the Danburyite that was mined in the city in the 1800s, and a few secrets behind the actual location of the mine. Danbury starts mining it, and we mine it up until the 1870s. And it's used largely in jewelry, you know, small bracelets. It's found all over the world, and some of the mines that Danbury is pulled from, there are really beautiful stones that can become really well-defined gemstones. Others don't end up getting cut down because there's no point, there's a lot of fracture. It's a lovely stone depending on where you find it in the world. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's got this really pretty pink to it, sometimes it's yellow, sometimes it's really brown. Here it would have been uh, clear to colorless. He finds it on White's land. You would think that would be easy to define, except that Colonel White was a major landowner in Danbury. Where the mine was actually located, we know it was on White's land. There are references in uh, more modern newspaper articles, which I think get it a little bit askew, because could it have been down by the Still River on land he owned? Yes, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. 
but sometimes these things don't make as much sense as we'd like them to make. So could it have been on any of his other properties in downtown? Sure. White's land and the Damborite mine remains a mystery as to its precise location. Um, I'm always hoping there's going to be a letter, you know, or somebody's going to donate a journal, or there's going to be a diary that walks in the door. And all of a sudden, we're going to be like, oh, my God, I know exactly where it is. And this building sits on it right now, you know, and then we'll be there, you know, with our historical society letter in hand saying, hey, can we take a picture? Some of the, I think, excitement about Damborite is that we don't actually know. So it really could have been anywhere. Now, if you've never heard of Damborite, you are not alone. But Bridget says it does receive some attention from time to time. Damborite is popular around the world. A couple of years ago, one of the major gems and mineral jewelry magazines wrote an article about Damborite and said it was one of the, the five up-and-coming stones. And so here at the Damborite Museum, we thought that was fantastic. We invested heavily. <laughs> but Damborite never really quite got over the hurdle of its name. It's a little difficult to say, and unfortunately, it's it's beautiful. I mean, I, I have rings. I've got earrings. Everybody in my family has rings here. Every every board member, every every wife of every board member, every daughter. So we sold Damborite here at the museum for a while, and, and you can find it anywhere online now. That's very common, but it never really made the kind of impactful splash of a, of a topaz or a ruby. And a follow-up uh, to the article suggested that perhaps the difficulty of the name led to the difficulty of understanding how beautiful uh, this stone really is. I would encourage everybody to look it up online. It's supposed to have some sort of mystical properties that offer clarity of thought and emotion. So whether or not that's true, I don't know. But it looks really pretty and sparkly when I wear it, so... I'm happy to wear my Danbury in Danbury. Now, moving a little further south, we head to the section of Ridgefield known as Branchville, and it's located on Route 7 in Fairfield County. And here we meet up with Brent Colley, who's a native of the Branchville area, and he was neighbor to a very famous mine just off Route 7. This mine, literally referred to as the world-famous Branchville mine, has a really extraordinary history. Now, like many mining operations, it got started in the 1800s and wound down in the 1920s for the most part. The owners started off looking for mica, and yes, they found it, but they weren't satisfied with the yield. They were about to shut it for good when some geologists from Yale and New Haven caught wind of it and convinced them to keep it open. Well, the Danbury to Norwalk train line had been built, and it was servicing the mine and also the nearby Gilbert and Bennett factory in Georgetown. The train station just down the hill from the mine was one you probably know of as Branchville. It used to be owned by a guy named Beers, so the station was first named Beers. Then it was called the Ridgefield Station because the spur line to downtown Ridgefield hadn't been built yet, so Ridgefield didn't have a train station. But finally, when that branch line to Ridgefield was constructed, the station name was changed to Branchville. Well, the train, of course, was critical to accessing markets that made the mine's minerals very, very profitable. Brent says that the entire village of Branchville, which still, of course, exists today, owes its legacy to this world-famous mine. The mining dates back to the 1850s. Granite was first, and then we got into what they found in what's called the world-famous Branchville mine. And then it was mined for feldspar and quartz. And later on, mica came back into play 
back in the 70s and 80s, you know, we didn't have cell phones and we didn't have really good video games. So we spent all of our time in the woods. So from Branchville all the way up into Redding, there's a, a big line of, of mica. I think based on what I've experienced, there was some kind of glacial element to that area. For the most part, everything that grew around Branchville grew around the mining industry. You know, there was a place called the Cooper's Tavern. Well, Coopers make barrels. And obviously the barrels were made there to take the silica, which is like a really fine sand on the trains. And obviously you had grocery stores and, and tool shops and all the things that you, know, you need for the mining industry right there. I don't think you can very easily separate the train station from the mine. First of all, it identifies Branchville now, and like you say, it used to be called Ridgefield, and it was what was used to transport things. But also, the mine itself is pretty darn close to the the train station, right? Yeah, and there was actually tracks that ran down to it. It's only about 500, 550 feet up from the station itself. I think that was one of the things that really made the industry profitable. Products could be easily taken from the mines, Heavy stuff like the granite is coming downhill, not uphill. So it's easy to get it to the trains. Now, involved in this story are two men, one called Philo, the other one called Philo. One was the landowner, the other one was the miner. Well, anyway, between them, the mine brought them and a couple of those geologists from Yale that we talked about some good old-fashioned fame and fortune. So now you've got Philo who owned it, Philo Bates, and he gave the land to Philo, and I don't even want to go into Philo's first name. We'll just call him Philo. Uh, and he starts mining this, and he finds the mica to be of inferior quality. And so he's ready to shut down the mine, and this is when Dana and Brush come around. The original guy who was mining the world-famous mine was looking for mica. The mica is used, I think, for insulation and electronics. That particular mine had some decent-sized sheets. Like it can be really small, like, you know, the size of a pebble or a penny. But uh, the sheets that are at, still there at the mine, were, were a lot bigger. Three by three or four by four. I'm sure there was bigger pieces. And that was kind of what the original miner was looking for. But it wasn't enough for what he wanted to do with it. With mica, you know, going back to what you were talking about, and this was why it was so important during World War II, the sheet mica that you find, uh, I guess, in abundance or, or did find in abundance there were used for things like spark plugs and radio apparatus and insulating electrical equipment. And this all came into vogue in World War II in terms of military uh, use. Yeah, and that's what, and they actually came back to Branchville to mine for it. And I don't know how it happened, but two gentlemen out of Yale University, one's name was Dana and the other one's name was Brush. And they came down and asked permission to mine it. They find nine rare minerals. Eight of them had never been found anywhere else in the world. So that's pretty significant. And that's why the namesake is the world famous Branchville Mine. And they gave some, uh, they gave sort of a tip of the hat to the, uh, the locals on the names of some of these. There was Philoite, <laughs> there was Reddingite, which is funny because now people call themselves Reddingites. Dickinsonite was another one that uh, I think a local reverend. Everything else, Fairfieldite. And then there's a couple that I struggle with their names. Lithophiliite, uh, Natrophiliite. 
azophiliates, stuff like that. To me, this is fascinating because not only did it launch Branchville in terms of its mining reputation and also launch the careers of those two uh, gentlemen from Yale. But, you know, this is really when you stop and think about it, this is the only place on this gigantic earth where those minerals have ever been found to exist. And it's right there, right off Route 7. Yeah. Nope. And you'd never know it was there unless you're like walking or riding a bike. It's just going to look like like a, a pond to you. And, you know, that mine would stay open for quite a long time. But that's kind of how, you know, Branchville starts to grow. I mean, once the um, minerals are found by Yale, and they're still at the Peabody Museum. I don't know if they display them anymore, but they're there. Then we get into something a little bit different, and that would be quartz and feldspar. And what they would do with that is they'd grind it down and use it in porcelain. And other things, uh, wood fillers, varnishes, paints. Um, it was very versatile and it was very important to many industries and therefore very profitable. That's why you, you see a lot of companies um, coming in to the area to, to mine it. Obviously, the uh, Bridgeport um, Wood Finishing Company came in and kind of took it to a whole other level. And they had a lot of different companies um, from Branchville to New Milford to um, other parts of the Northeast, where Georgetown had different Bennett Branchville had this industry. So now let's focus for a second on this Bridgeport Wood Finishing Company. As you say, they had a facility in Branchville. They uh, had a place in New Milford, which I don't think a lot of people know about this. But if you think and if you could describe for a second, this is always amazes me, these two gigantic grinding stones that they used to use to put the quartz in there and grind it down into sand. It looks like something out of the Flintstones. No, it's true. And I think the grinding stones were made out of the same material that they're grinding down so you could keep the purity of it. And if people want to visualize what it looks like, if you go up to New Milford and you cross the bridge on 202 and make a left at Youngsfield, Youngsfield Road, the parking lot right there, pull in and you'll see the stones themselves. Those stones were used at the mill. So it's a neat connection to the past with the future that you'd never see unless you had this conversation. The ground-up quartz became a substance known as silica. It had a lot of uses, but originally the Bridgeport Wood Finishing Company used it as a wood filler. Well, eventually, they'd be bought out by the DuPont Company, which branded the material as Silex, a commercial product that's actually still available today. Meantime, in the Southford section of Southbury, where town historian John Dwyer has his house, there was a mine across the street from his place where pegmatite was discovered. He says that local entrepreneurs took the rock in horse-drawn wagons to the Bridgeport Wood Finishing Company factory where it was ground into powder. However, he says the particular factory they took it to wasn't the one in Branchville. It was one in New Milford. They had a quarry across the street where they mined pegamite. The pegamite went to Bridgeport Wood Finishing Company at a place called Lover's Leap in New Milford. If you ever cross the old Iron Bridge, Lover's Leap Bridge in New Milford, if you look down on the left, you'll see the ruins of the old uh, wood finishing company. The ruins are right on the piece of land where the Still River meets the Housatonic River, and it's located right by the train tracks. And just like the quartz from Branchville, the pegmatite from Southford was processed. They called it silica, and they would add it to the paint, and it supposedly gave the paint durability. And speaking of durability... 
Few rocks are as durable as granite. Yet, when you think of granite, you usually picture a rather dull gray color. Well, that's what makes the area just off Long Island Sound, east of New Haven, so special. It's in Brantford and Guilford. The granite there has a pink color that's drawn world-renowned architects to the area to get some of that granite for some of the most iconic buildings ever built in New York City. Mary Donahue is the assistant publisher for Connecticut Explored Magazine, and she's one of the hosts of the podcast Grading the Nutmeg, featuring stories on Connecticut history just like this podcast does. Well, Mary's written an article on this pink granite formation for their Connecticut Explored magazine, and it's simply a fascinating story. One that begins hundreds of millions of years ago, when the land mass on Earth was one single piece, and then it broke apart and gave each continent its geologic makeup. If you really trace it all back to the Pangea supercontinent that broke apart, and, and somehow Connecticut got lucky enough to retain the pink granite, when you look at it from that perspective, I mean, just how crazy is that? I know. It's really astonishing. As an architectural historian, I always look at what buildings are made from, how they can be preserved and taken care of. Stone, of course, is a really popular building material. It has been since the prehistoric times. But this pink granite, when I moved to Connecticut, really caught my eye because of the color and the quality of it. And it's supposedly only available in three places in the world, one of which is Stony Creek, Connecticut. And the fact that it's 600 million years old, you know, contributes to its mystique. Now, as I understand it, this vein of granite actually starts somewhat in the Thimble Islands off the coast goes under the, you know, the, the beaches of Guilford and Brantford, goes under I-95, and goes up into the area of Brantford and Guilford, where I guess eventually there were 15 different mines that were tapped. Is, is that how you understand it? Yeah, it's supposed to be basically a triangle-shaped wedge in color. And if you've ever taken the wonderful little boat tour you can take of the Thimble Islands, those are granite too. And then there's this wedge of pink granite that's triangular that is the Branford-Guilford material. Now, there's other granite quarries toward Waterford that are gray in color, so they don't have that little reddish mineral potassium feldspar and iron combination that gives Stony Creek the pink color. Now, they, uh, they meaning the business people of the day, stumbled across this, saw the spectacular nature of the material, and immediately went about setting up, I guess, about 15 uh, granite mines between Branford and Guilford. It was funny. The Hartford Current reported in 1916 that wealthy men had discovered vast quantities of this granite, and it reported that they bought the land for next to nothing and opened these quarries. Nowadays, there's still one big commercial quarry that's still in business, Previous to that, there were about 15 of these smaller quarries, and they brought in foreign workers, immigrant workers, who a lot of times had some kind of stoneworking experience from the old country, whether it was the British Isles or whether it was Italy or Portugal. They had some kind of experience to start with in stone quarrying. And it seems like at the peak, there were as many as almost 2,000 workers there. There were, and you... You would never know that now. When you drive through that area, you wouldn't necessarily think of these as big ethnic enclaves. 
but they built housing for them. They bought hotels that they converted to housing. One of the quarries had a company store. They had social halls for workers. Well, it sounds like you're referring to John Beatty's activities. He was the Scottish stonemason expert who uh, set up shop at one of the granite mines and took care of his workers. Uh, I guess he bought up to 325 acres and had that commissary and, and social hall. He had a pretty big contract. It's the one that everybody talks about in terms of the uh, pink granite, where it went. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Beatty was Scottish. Like you said, he was a master stonemason by trade, and he started to buy property in 1869 in Guilford. We're lucky because his grandson in 2017 actually wrote a book about him. And in that book, he talks about his grandfather starting this business and working with workers. And that big contract, the flashy one that you're talking about, was to do the base of the Statue of Liberty. Now, that's an incredible project. It took 450 tons of that granite, and they had to get it out to Bedloe Island in, in New York Harbor. I mean, what an, what an undertaking in the 1880s. Oh, it's crazy to think about because this is just tons and tons of stone. So in 1882, John Beatty won the contract to provide the granite for the pedestal. So the foundation and the base are 154 feet tall. You think to yourself, well, how do you move all this stone? It's not rough stone. It has to be what's called dress stone, which is shaped into the blocks and the uh, sizes and the decorative features that the architect wants to put into the base of this building. So he had his own boats to ship the stone in. And it was a real process where they would dynamite big chunks of stone off the face of the quarry. To do that, they would look for faults and weaknesses in the stone the way it, it, it's naturally occurring and put dynamite in there and blow off blocks of the stone. Then you'd have to have a derrick uh, pull the stone and move it over to either a little side railroad track and put it on a railroad car to move it or to have it be a chunk of stone that was put on a sled and drawn by oxen. And it then went to a finishing shed where the workmen that are the carvers and the cutters would have to take whatever big block of stone this was look at the specifications from the architect, look at the drawings, and shape those individual pieces that would be used to build it into the right sizes and shapes. And then all this granite then has to be put onto boats and sent to New York City. It's really mind-boggling. And you make it sound so uh, such like a natural process, which eventually they got it to, but it didn't come without its uh, health risks. Oh, gosh. Everything about this is dangerous. And if you think about the fact that in the 19th century in America, most, most industries were not regulated for worker safety at all. So this is an exceedingly dangerous occupation. You start out, first of all, with the, the dynamiting process. So there's always that danger of explosion. You could be also, you could be crushed by a stone slide. You could be crushed somewhere in the process of, you know, working with moving the stone to the finishing sheds. You've got the danger of what was called white lung, which is silicosis. And what that means is that little particles of the stone would be breathed in by the worker. 
you think of like, even if you walk on the beach and you realize how rough sand can be sometimes, those particles of stone in your lungs cause it to shred and then you hemorrhage and bleed and it's fatal. So these were not people that had on scientific respirators or any kind of real protection from all this dust that they're creating with the stone. And aside from that, uh, we know that the wealthy businessmen got the land fairly cheaply. We also know that the um, workers were not necessarily paid a huge wage. I mean, put things in perspective, but in 1900, about 21 to 35 cents an hour. But more importantly, at that point, they asked for a raise and the owners said no. What, what happened then? These workers, like many workers in the 19th century, tried to unionize. And in Stony Creek, they did strike. They were basically locked out. The strike was not terribly effective. For one of the strikes, they get a small raise, but it's never very effective to really improve their working conditions or their pay. Yeah, it's just horrible. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and knowing that you love architectural history, when you go to New York City and walk around and see buildings like Grand Central you know, Terminal or maybe walk by the Brooklyn Bridge or Columbia University or Bellevue Hospital or Grant's Tomb, all these places, even Macy's at Herald Square and the Metropolitan Museum of Art, all these places where that pink granite has been found. Is this something that, uh, or has been used actually, is that something that immediately catches your eye? It does. And it Something that I found in the New York Times when they were describing Grand Central Station, there were several articles uh, in the Times about it as it was being designed and constructed. And so one of them speaks just glowingly about how this pink granite that's used from the balustrade above the storefronts all the way down to the sidewalk is going to contrast so beautifully with the white limestone above it and that they just go on and on about the visual effect and how like stunning that combination is going to be. Very thoughtful. I was watching a a uh, documentary from ABC Nightline on the Castellucci and Sons family that were the last sort of family owners of that last remaining granite mine in Brantford before it uh, went into uh, corporate hands. One of the things they said was that they're able to uh, cut in one month what it used to take three years to cut, and they're not worried about it running out because there's hundreds of years left. They have done a fascinating thing at the new current Stony Creek Quarry Company. They cut the stone with a diamond-infused wire instead of blasting it with dynamite. I almost think about when you use a wire cutter to cut cheese. This is kind of the same idea. So they can be very intentional about the shape and size of how they're cutting the stone. Well, my, how things have changed in the mining industry. And who knew that lowly rocks would ever generate so many technological advancements? Well, that wraps up this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. For those with an even deeper interest in Connecticut's mineral deposits, you definitely want to make a trip to the Connecticut Museum of Mining and Mineral Science. It's in Kent, Connecticut. There are several very knowledgeable experts there. They've got great exhibits and a fabulous map laying out where you can find the major deposits around the state. 
I want to thank my guests for today's show, Mary Donahue, Brent Colley, Bridget Gurton, John Dwyer, and Bob Brown. If you like the show, make sure you follow the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And this way you'll be notified when the next episode comes. Tell your family, friends, and colleagues all about it and help them find the link. Also, I do presentations on the topics I discuss on Amazing Tales. If you're interested in having me come to your group, just drop me a line at AmazingTalesCT at gmail.com. Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and please stay healthy. Stay healthy.